And he began the debate by saying, I'm going to concede for the sake of discussion that the fetus is a moral person just like you or me. Now, I'm going to argue that abortion is justified on the following basis. That means that $200 million a year, every year, is basically coming from the Christian community to the abortion community. There are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. You know, the problem with the abortion issue is the church. I mean, this is the log in our eye versus the speck in the culture's eye. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan designated January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. The date was chosen to coincide with the 11th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court case that first recognized the constitutionally protected status of abortion in the United States. Reagan issued the proclamation annually thereafter, designating the Sanctity of Human Life Day to fall on the third Sunday in January. Since Roe v. Wade was signed in 1973, almost 60 million abortions have been performed. To give a little perspective, the annual number of children lost to abortion is equivalent to every military death, including the Revolutionary War until today. Think about that. On an annual basis, that's how many children are aborted. Another way to understand the gravity of this number, right at 3,000 Americans died as a result of 9-11. Every single day, more than 3,000 American babies die at the hands of an abortion provider. Today on In Context, Michael speaks with Stephanie Gray, anti-abortion activist and author of Love Unleashes Life, Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth, and Roland Warren, president and CEO of CareNet, a nonprofit organization that supports over 1,100 independent affiliated pregnancy centers in North America. And now your host, Michael Easley. All right, Stephanie, give us a picture of the best arguments the pro-abortionist has. You know, one compelling argument that they have is one that came up in debate, and I actually internally panicked when I heard it from my opponent. It was with a professor at the University of Ottawa, and he began the debate by saying, I'm going to concede for the sake of discussion that the fetus is a moral person just like you or me. They have the same right to life that you or I have. And he said, but I'm going to argue that abortion is justified on the following basis. No living human person has a right to use another living human person's body without their consent. And he said, let me give you an example. If you have a born child who we acknowledge is a living person who needs a kidney transplant and will die without having a kidney transplant, if you were the only person as this child with the right body type to donate your kidney and be able to save your child's life, he said, even though it would be nice of you to donate your kidney, even though it would save your child's life to donate your kidney, even though it wouldn't kill you to donate your kidney. He said, the law shouldn't force you to donate your kidney. And he said, in the same way, even if it would be nice for a woman to donate her uterus to her fetus, even though it wouldn't kill her, even though it would save her fetus, the law shouldn't force her to do that. And I was sitting there and I was taking notes, trying to appear confident to my audience, but inside I was really unsettled. And I thought, I I don't know what to say to this. And so I began to pray silently, and I sensed what he said to me was, Stephanie, I made the uterus for a different purpose. And I began to think that through, and then I got clarity, 
and I stood up and I said, the professor's arguments are compelling until we ask ourselves a question. And that is, what is the nature and purpose of the kidney versus the nature and purpose of the uterus? And I said, the kidney exists in my body for my body. So while it's nice of me to share it, I have no obligation to do so. But I said, the uterus is very different. I said, the uterus exists in my body every single month, getting ready for someone else's body. I said, I can live without my uterus, but my offspring cannot. And the very nature of that organ shows it's created more for the next generation than it is for me. And therefore, I do have a legal responsibility to provide that for my fetus in the way I don't have to provide my kidney for my 10-year-old. Roland, what do you think? If you're pro-choice, basically what you're saying is that, look, I don't care which choice a woman makes. I just care that she has the right to make that choice without there being obstacles. Now, what you find is, from a pro-choice perspective, a lot of time, money, expense, everything is focused on making sure that there are no obstacles to the choice for her to have the abortion. That's where all the focus is. But if you're truly pro-choice, you should be working just as hard to make sure, from birth to conception, that there are no obstacles for her choosing life. You see what I'm saying? If you're talking to a room full of 25, 35-year-old men and women who largely accept pro-choice, what would you say to them, Roland? If you think about it, most of the conversations I've had with folks that have that perspective, they're really in many ways coming from a place of compassion. What I mean by that is they think about a woman who's at risk and not wanting her to be at risk. They think about the child and, and the view that this child is going to be born and then come into a world and not be cared for. So a big part for me is really helping them understand But whenever we're making decisions, because what they're really talking about is apportioning compassion. And whenever we're making decisions about compassion, there are two things that everybody looks at. It's power and vulnerability. Who's the more powerful? Who's the more vulnerable? And how we make a decision on compassion is we try to allocate the most compassion for the most vulnerable. And part of my perspective is to say, look, there are two lives that are at stake here, two lives. One is the woman and one is the baby. And when you do a comparison, you say power, vulnerability, and compassion, you say who's the more powerful in the scenario with the child inside? It's certainly the woman. And, and by the way, the pro-choice movement says that because it's my body, my choice, which is a power statement. And then you say, well, who's the more vulnerable? Well, it's clearly the child. It's not that the woman doesn't have some vulnerability. And it's not that the child doesn't, quote, have some power, but the reality is when you're apportioning your compassion, you would apportion more of your compassion towards the more vulnerable, which was what really kind of leads us there. Your last book, uh, Love Unleashes Life, Abortion, and the Art of Communicating Truth. It's about these conversations that you want to have with with, uh, women who are struggling. Give us a little insight on, on where you're going. Yes, it comes from encountering so many people over the years and coming to realize that as important as it is that we have very sharp minds and solid arguments to defend our claims, that while necessary, that's not sufficient. We also need tender hearts. We need to seek to understand where the other person is coming from and reach their hearts as well as their minds. And so the book is really a very practical tool for people of faith um, to look at how we can model Christ's interactions with others. So what would you tell someone who maybe doesn't have the best arguments, they're not as quick on their feet, and and they've got a friend at work, she's uh, just found out she's pregnant, she's not married, maybe she's in her 20s, and this person knows, you know, I wish I could say something to my friend. I just don't know what or how to broach that conversation. How would you coach them? 
Yes. Again, like Christ, we want to ask a lot of questions. So to that friend, express sympathy. I'm sorry for the difficult situation you're in. I want to help you. How can I best help you? What would be meaningful to you? It's an open-ended question. See what she said. You know, it may be tempting to think these are conversations we might be having with a coworker or a friend outside the church. But the truth is, we need to have these kinds of conversations within the Christian community. I think Karen suggests four out of 10 abortions occur with women who attend a church on a consistent basis. Does that uh, ring true with what you see? Well, the four out of 10 number comes actually from a, a national survey we did a couple of years ago, about 18 months ago, in partnership with LifeWay. So we surveyed women who had had abortions, and we asked them about their church attendance. And what we found was, that, as you said, nearly four out of 10 women were attending church at the time of their first abortion. And many of them had multiple abortions. Mm-hmm. And so they're in the church on Sunday and in the abortion clinic on Monday, and it's, it's an enormous, enormous issue within the church. There's an economic impact to this. I mean, just think about this for a second. There's roughly a million abortions. It's actually kind of undercounted because some states don't report, but just use a million for round numbers. A million abortions, 40% of that is 400000 The average abortion is $500. That means that $200 million a year, every year, is basically coming from the Christian community to the abortion community year after year after year. So we're talking about defunding Planned Parenthood. We've got to overturn Roe v. Wade in our own hearts and in our own pews. I mean, just imagine what $200 million focused on life-saving ministries could do within communities and churches. And we're moving that money to Planned Parenthood. But then we're picketing them and, and marching and all this other stuff. We could defund them ourselves, and that's why I'm hopeful, because no one can stop us from talking to and engaging and supporting people within the body of Christ who understand the gospel, understand that, but are struggling uh, to make a life decision because they don't have the life support that they need in order to support that. We can very quickly, and as a person who works with a church, uh, blame the church. You know, all, all the cultural ills are because of the church's failures. <laughs> you know, I've heard this for 35 years. Uh, but at another level, we're fighting a cultural conversation where no matter how hard we work, we seem to lose. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I basically said from my standpoint that, you know, the problem with the abortion issue actually is the church. I mean, this is the log in our eye versus the speck in the culture's eye. And if we're having abortions at this rate, it really does send the message through the broader culture. And I think that there's an enormous opportunity. Just structurally, there's not a ministry on-ramp for someone who's facing an unplanned pregnancy. Like if a woman wakes up Sunday morning and she takes a pregnancy test and it's a plus and it's not positive news for her, exactly what ministry in the church is she supposed to talk to? I mean, who's she supposed to talk to? I mean, if her husband leaves her, there's a ministry for that. They have financial issues, there's a ministry for that. They need to know that their church is going to treat them not like the Pharisees when they treat the woman called adultery, but also like Jesus did. Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. And so that's a big part of the work that Karen has been doing in terms of putting a pregnancy care ministry, not sinners, but a ministry component into the church so there's a ministry on-ramp for folks that are facing a pregnancy decision. Now, I read that in seven years— Karenette has affected 462,089 lives have been saved. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, Earlier this year, we launched a new ministry called Making Life Disciples, and it's really a ministry curriculum that's designed to help churches offer compassion, hope, help, and discipleship for anyone who's considering abortion. Any last burning thing, Stephanie, you want to be sure that you get across? 
Mm. Well, you know, I think it's just important to remember that we have a duty to love the least and to rescue those who are being dragged to the slaughter. And we all have a responsibility, whether we're working full-time in the pro-life movement or not, we all have a universal responsibility to care for our fellow human beings and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And Stephanie's words are a call to all of us. What do you and I do in our sphere of influence? How do we keep the conversation going about pro-life and pro-choice in a compassionate, engaging way to those that perhaps have already made up their minds on their positions? You know, I hope the conversation today has encouraged you and maybe even challenged some of your presuppositions. This broadcast is part of a bigger picture, a bigger conversation about understanding pro-life and pro-choice values. How do we as believers in Christ engage the conversation, not withdraw, not hide, not live under a political correct fear, but in love and in truth and with good decorum to have these kind of conversations? On our next program, we take a deeper look into Planned Parenthood. We chat with a former abortion provider, and we learn about an organization that is helping abortion workers who leave the industry. This is Mike Leasley in Context. Mm -hmm.